All right, good morning, Central. How are you today? Okay, honest confession now. How many of you normally attend an earlier service but, but came to this service because of the time change? Anybody? So this is so strange. Like the first two services were jam-packed. And I kept thinking, oh, it's because they got up you know, earlier or whatever. And this one's full too, so I'm not getting it. Are you inviting your friends to church or something? You've got to stop doing that because... <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, our, our, our walk with Christ begins privately. It, it begins with sort of a secret decision we make in our heart to surrender our lives completely to Jesus. When we recognize salvation means trusting Jesus and what He did on the cross alone for salvation and, and doing away with the, the idea that somehow we can earn it, uh, we deserve it, and humbling ourselves before the Lord and saying, I, I know I'm a sinner and, and the only way I can be saved is by receiving the gift of grace that you offer to me through the cross. That, that begins privately, but it was never intended to remain private. Our faith in Christ is something that's supposed to become public. And the, the very first act of faith after salvation is supposed to be baptism. We're supposed to publicly declare in front of people that we love Jesus and that we're following Jesus and we're not ashamed of that commitment. And so on November 20th, that's when we do our next water baptism service. And if you've never, if, if since making that private decision of faith, crossing the line of faith in your heart, you've not been water baptized, um, then you need to be water baptized. Uh, it doesn't matter if you were water baptized before that decision of faith. If since that decision, you've, you've not been water baptized. Jesus said, go into the world, make disciples, and baptize them. <clears throat> the apostle said, repent of your sin, turn to God, and be baptized. That order. And so watch this video. I want to I challenge you this morning, if you need to be water baptized, to consider being baptized on November 20th. I didn't know if I was completely ready to commit my life to God. Instead of everyone publicly like pushing me to get baptized, it was more like awkward. I'm the first person. I want to be able to do this right, and I want to do it for the right reasons. I always thought that it's not right to get rebaptized. I think for me, it was more of a, a pride thing. I made it way too complicated than it needed to be. It was mostly out of fear. I allowed shame to keep me from feeling worthy of publicly proclaiming freedom from my sin. My shame is gone. That last breath that I took before being submerged and the physical cleansing that I felt was a tangible reminder that I no longer bear that shame. Let your light shine for Jesus' day and I feel more comfortable showing that through the way I act. In the next few weeks, I really felt the Holy Spirit walking with me in that time. I found freedom from the chains that were holding me back. I really felt a peace of mind. I feel a greater sense of peace a greater sense of boldness. More faith now, more confidence in uh, who God is, a deeper connection with Him. Baptism has been a tangible like event that I can look back on and say, wow, I've, yeah, I belong to Christ.
All right, if you need to make that decision and be water baptized, I want you to maybe take a picture of this screen uh, with your phone. You can either text be baptized to that number or scan that QR code. We need you to take a class to make sure that, that we're confident that you know what it means to be a Christ follower, that you've made that decision, uh, and then we'll get you ready to go for November 20th. So stay, take that step of faith and follow through. All right, good morning again, everyone. If you have a Bible this morning, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. If you find the New Testament, you found Matthew. Matthew's the very first book of the New Testament. We're going to jump into chapter 6 here in just a minute. In the next four weeks, we're inviting our entire church family uh, to a, a season of focused prayer. We're asking God in this season uh, to guide us as we, as we think about expanding our campus. We want to get the Lord's heart in this. And so we're calling our whole congregation to a, to a season of prayer. Um, it's not interrupting our teaching series in Extraordinary in the Sermon on the Mount because Matthew chapter six, as we're gonna begin today, is really most of the chapters about prayer or a lot of the chapters about prayer. So for the next five weeks, we're gonna be studying the Lord's Prayer for Matthew chapter six uh, as we do that. Every week in this season of prayer in November, uh, we're gonna have a theme for prayer. So if you didn't get one on the way in, make sure when you leave today, you pick up one of these magnets, one per household, it gives you each week and the theme and the scripture verse that goes along with that. We're gonna take a few minutes in every service, every weekend service in November to pray together as a congregation and along the lines of that particular theme. Um, on on uh, Tuesday night, a week from this Tuesday, November 15th, we're having a live prayer gathering uh, right here at Central in our worship center. So we're gonna gather together, uh, we're gonna to pray together in our services and the final thing is, Every day, Monday through Friday, uh, at a certain time, we haven't decided what time that is yet, probably uh, around noonish or maybe a little bit later than that. Um, anyone that wants to get on a text thread with us and get a prayer prompt, we're gonna send one prayer prompt out every weekday. And the hope is that when you get that prayer prompt, it's gonna tell you what to pray for. And can you imagine uh, thousands of people all across the city at the same time getting that text and taking 30 or 60 seconds and praying for that. That's our hope, that you would stop if you're not in a meeting or you're not too busy, you would stop and pray with us related to that. So if you wanna get on that texting thread, um, it's in the bulletin, but you can also simply just, just maybe take a picture of that or write that down, but it is in the bulletin. Prayer to that number. Starting tomorrow, uh, you'll be getting prayer prompts through a text message, and we want you to pray with us. If you can't pray right then, pray as soon as you can later. We're gonna, we're gonna begin to pray together. We're going to take some time today at the very end of the service to pray along the lines of our, our first theme. All right? Let's pray. God, thank you this morning for the, for the power of your word. Thank you for this amazing group of people that have gathered here to worship you, to, to lift up your name, to make your name great, to experience your presence, and, and then, Lord, to hear your voice through the teaching of the word. And so I pray, God, every ear would be open today, every heart would be open, and that you would guide us and lead us in this teaching on prayer today, in Jesus' name, amen. Every one of us wants to learn from successful people. In, in whatever field you're in, whatever profession you're in, we, we wanna learn from the best. There's no coach that wants to go to a coaching clinic that's being led by a coach who hasn't won a game in the last four years, right? We don't wanna to go to that clinic. 
Oh, we want to go to the clinic where you know the guy's winning national championship after national championship. We we want to go and learn from from the best. When when I was um, coaching high school basketball a number of years ago, um, I read everything I could about Coach John Wooden. He coached the UCLA Bruins. I, I think he's the the greatest coach. Period. Not just basketball um, in any sport, but the greatest basketball coach ever at any level. Because he was not only concerned about teaching his players about basketball and helping them to be a great team, he was concerned about them off the court. And so he taught them principles of life. Coach, Coach Wooden influenced me. I, I wanted to learn from the best, and so I read everything I could about Coach Wooden. When I was really cutting my teeth in ministry, just getting started in preaching, I lived in Southern California. I would, I would listen to sermons by Dr. Jack Hayford and Pastor E.V. Hill from Zion Missionary Baptist Church maybe the, one of the great African-American preachers. And those were the guys I cut my teeth on. More recently, I listened to guys like Andy Stanley and Dr. Barry Black, the chaplain of the, uh, chaplain of the U.S. Senate, who, by the way, is going to be back here in May. You don't want to miss Chaplain Black. He's going to be really good when he comes back. But, but you're no different. You, you, you go to seminars, you go to conferences, you want to learn from successful people how to do what you're doing the best that you possibly can. And when we, when we see the fruit of the work in their lives, we ask the question, what's behind their greatness? What's causing their greatness? Why are they producing the fruit in their life that they are? And the disciples of Jesus were no different. The disciples of Jesus saw the greatness of Jesus up close and personal every day. They, they walked with him every day for over three years. They saw his miracles, they saw his power, they saw his wisdom, they saw his courage, they saw his faith, and maybe more than any of those things, they, they saw the intimate relationship that he had with God the Father, and they wanted it for themselves. And they made this, this really wise and discerning correlation or connection between the greatness of Jesus, the miracles and all of those things, and the prayer life of Jesus. They recognized that the reason that Jesus lived the way he did, the reason Jesus walked the way he did in power and grace and faith and all of those things was because of his prayer life. And so this happened in Luke chapter 11. Once Jesus was in a certain place praying, the implication in that text is he was praying by himself, although the disciples were around. As he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, Teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Jesus said, this is how you should pray. And then following that verse, Jesus gives Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer. Now, Luke's version is abbreviated. It, it's not the, the full Lord's Prayer that you're probably used to. You're probably used to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. So would you stand with me this morning? And we are going to recite the Lord's Prayer together from Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, and, and if you want to say it in, in, your, in the, 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 the version that you memorized or that you grew up with, that's fine. And if someone next to you gives you a stink eye, just ignore it. Just say, you know what? That's how I learned it. Tough luck, pal. Um, or if you want to follow uh, this version, you can as well. Let's, let's say this together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 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 You may be seated.
How many of you could have said that with us with your eyes closed? Of course, see, many of our church traditions, we, we memorize it and we, we say that all the time. Uh, we, we, we can pray that without even, without even really thinking about it. And when it comes to the Lord's Prayer, remember, this is, this is something that Jesus gave to the disciples to teach them how to pray. And I want to suggest, as we go through this in the next few weeks, that you have a teachable spirit. That, that like the disciples, you, you come to Jesus and you come to the, the Scripture and you say, Lord, teach me to pray. Humble your heart and say, I, I want to learn from the Master how to pray better. Michael Wilkins said something that I think is really profound. He says, the Lord's Prayer is not so much a command to pray. We all know we're supposed to pray. The Lord's Prayer is not so much a command to pray, but rather an invitation to share in the prayer life of Jesus. An invitation to share in the prayer life of Jesus. We know we're supposed to pray. Most of us would say we don't pray enough. But let's look at this as an invitation from Jesus to learn how to pray as he prayed, amen? The Lord's Prayer is a powerful prayer, but it's a, it's a model, it's, it's a pattern, it's a guideline. Um, it, it's, it's not so much, uh, I should say this, it's more of a launching pad than a landing strip. Here's what I mean by that. It's more of a, a starting point than a finishing point. The Lord's Prayer is supposed to launch us into deeper and broader prayer and intimacy with God. It's not something that we're supposed to say word for word. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus warned the disciples about that. He, don't, he said, don't just pray meaningless repetition. Don't just say words. And many of you, you pray that prayer or you say that prayer and you're saying the words, but it has no meaning in your heart. You're not even thinking about what you're saying. That was never Jesus' intention. Jesus' intention was that this would be an outline. This would be a guide. This would be something that, that helps you navigate your prayer life with the Lord. And so I want to approach it from that way. The disciples recognized that this was the first step toward the extraordinary life. They realized that if they wanted to live the extraordinary life that Jesus was calling them and inviting them to live, they needed to have an extraordinary prayer life. They needed to pray like Jesus if they wanted to live like Jesus, and so do we. We need to learn to pray like Christ if we're going to walk in the power and the grace and the wisdom of Christ in our lives. And Jesus intentionally put this prayer together. He structured it strategically according to, to his plan. That There's something in this model that reflects the prayer life of Jesus. And the first half of the prayer is focused on God. The second half of the prayer is focused on us and our needs, and that was intentional by Jesus. The first half is focused on God and who He is. The second half is focused on us and our needs because Jesus is teaching us and telling us that prayer is supposed to begin with a revelation of who God is, amen? Not our needs, we know our needs, but we need to, we need to step into prayer first with an understanding of who God is. See. Who we pray to is more important than what we pray. Because the reality is, who we pray to determines how we pray and what we pray for. So I'm gonna take a little bit of an, of an unconventional approach to teaching the Lord's Prayer the next five weeks. I, I'm gonna, I think that in this prayer, Jesus gives us five pictures or five divine images of who God is. 
And he wants us to, to use that as we, as we walk through our prayer time together. And the very first image or picture that he gives us is that God is a loving father. God is a loving father. Would you read with me our text this morning in Matthew chapter 6? We're going to begin reading in verse 5. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. Jesus says, when you pray, not if you pray, if you're a follower, a disciple of Jesus, you're going to pray. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. That's a reference to the Jewish leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. Jesus calls them hypocrites because they, they gave the appearance of being really spiritual on the outside, but they weren't very spiritual on the inside. They, they love to stand in public in their robes and with their phylacteries. and They, they, they like to be seen as spiritual people. They, they like to be seen as religious people, as, as spiritual leaders in the community. He said but that, that, that all they're going to receive if, they pray, if you pray that way is, is the affirmation of people. He says, I tell you the truth, that's all the reward they're ever going to get. Jesus says, but when you pray, go away by yourself and shut the door behind you. Get in secret and pray to your Father in secret. Say, Father. Okay, so right away, Jesus is already preparing us for what the very first line of the Lord's Prayer is going to be, which is our Father. Jesus is preparing us to pray initially to our Father. He says, your Father, uh, He sees what's done. Then your Father, who sees everything, will reward you. When you pray, not if you pray, don't babble on and on like the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them for your father, say father, knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. So why start there? If we believe that Jesus had a plan for prayer, if we believe that, that the Lord's Prayer is simply a reflection of the prayer life of Jesus and probably the most effective way ever to pray, why did Jesus start there? Why did he say, begin our Father in heaven? Because there's something in this image of a loving Father that is foundational and crucial to our prayer life. I want to suggest three thoughts concerning why Jesus said, pray our Father in heaven. The first is this, our life is purposeful, not random. Our life is purposeful, not random. When Jesus says, begin praying our Father, he's saying to us, pray to your Father, meaning your, your Creator, the one who made you. The one who created you with divine purpose, your progenitor. The one from whom all life flows, the, the source of life. God made you, and God made you with a divine purpose. When he, when he carefully formed you in your mother's womb, He not only formed you physically, but He, he created a destiny for your life. He created a destiny that was going to match everything that you are physically, emotionally, and mentally. Th those two things came together when God created you, so He has a plan and a purpose for you. So when we come to scriptures like Acts chapter 17, we read this. The God who made the world and everything that's in it, since he is Lord of heaven and the earth, does not dwell in temples made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. God is the source of life, he continues. And God made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind, 
to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Notice what God determined. God determined where you were gonna be born. God determined when you were gonna be born. God, you were, God determined who you were gonna be born to. God determined everything about your life and how it started, and God began your life with purpose and meaning. You're not an accident. An intelligent designer put you together. Life didn't, didn't jump into existence randomly. There was an intelligent God that put everything together. So James chapter 1, verse 17 says this. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father, who's also our creator, who created all the stars in the heavens. And then, of course, the very first verse in, in the Bible, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God did what? God created the heavens and the earth and all humanity, all mankind. God has created everything, including you, and he created it with divine purpose. Your life is not an accident. What's happening in your life is not happen, happening randomly right now. God has a plan for your life. And the only plan that God has for you is a good plan. It's the best plan. It's an intentional and strategic plan to give you the best life possible. And so we come to, to verses like uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, which says this, God says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. Your father, the one that created you, the one that gave you life, has a divine purpose for your life. He has a plan. That verse is about Israel and God's plan for Israel, but that's true for every individual as well. God not only has a plan for his people, the church now, but God has a plan for you, and he created you with that purpose in mind. So what is God doing right now? He's working out his good plan in your life. And so we go to the Lord in prayer, and our life is falling apart. Evil is all around us. Our life couldn't be worse. And we go to the Lord, we say, what are you doing? What, what's happening? What is going on? And Jesus says, start by praying, our Father in heaven, the one who right now has a good plan for your life. The one who right now is executing that plan in your life, whether you can see it or not. Paul spoke of that in, in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, when he said, we, we know, we are confident that God causes all things, say all things, everything to work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. So I don't know what's happening in your life. I don't know what's falling apart in your life. I don't know what evil has crept into your life. I do know this. Jesus said, go to the Lord in prayer. Recognize him as your father, your creator, the one with a purpose, plan, and destiny for your life. The one that says, I'm causing right now everything to work together for good in your life right now. That's the only plan that I have. It's a plan for good. Jesus comes along and he says in John 10, 10, the thief, probably a reference to Satan, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that you might have life, even abundant life. So, so we go to the Lord wondering what is going on. Our life is falling apart. We can't understand this. God, what are you doing? He says, I'm working out my plan for your good. I have a good plan for your life. When, when we planted our very first church, um, in 1989 in Hacienda Heights, California. We planted the church and we rented facilities for a number of years. We rented a middle school and then we, we graduated to a church building. There was a church that let us rent their facility after they met in the morning. And so we, we rented facilities. Finally, we leased some retail space in the city 
and we were going to put our church there. And, and so we, we, but it was a medical building prior to that, so they had really small cubicles and examination rooms, and it was set up really weird. So we had to go in and gut it, and then recreate what we wanted the church to look like with some Sunday school rooms and a main meeting room and all of that. So we had to draw up plans. And so we'd, we'd go to the, the, take our plans to the city planner, and he said, well, no, 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 that's not right, you can't do that. And we're like, come on, man, what, what are you talking about? We're, we're just trying to put a church in here. He goes, I understand that, but there's codes and there's regulations that you have to follow. It's like, okay, but we're, we're just trying to help people. We're just trying to do the right thing. Can't you see that? It's like, I understand that, but you're, you're not following the rules here. And so we, we just felt like we were constantly fighting the city. They, they, they weren't real church friendly anyways because we don't, we're, we're tax exempt, so we don't give them revenue. So they, weren't, they didn't want a ton of churches coming in because there wasn't money in that. And, and yet they had guidelines and, and, and rules that they had to, to follow. And, and I thought about that and I thought, how often do I pray like that? Like, like I go to God with my plans. I, I go to, to God with my, my, my own design, my, my architectural plans about what my life is supposed to look like. And I go to God and I say, God, just rubber stamp this thing. I don't want you to give any amendments. I don't want you to, to change this. I don't want to fight you. I just want you to give me approval. Just bless what I want to do in my life. And, and that's not how God works. Because you think your plan is good, but it's probably not. And God says, I've got a better plan. I've got a good plan. Be patient with me. Make the adjustments in your life that I want you to make, and you're going to find it's a really good plan. And yet I find myself over and over going to God and saying, God, just bless what I want. Just bless my plans, just, just whatever I want to do. See, our life is purposeful. It's not random. Jesus says, when you begin to pray, say, my Father, my Creator, the one who has a plan for my life, I trust you. Come on, somebody. I trust that you've got a good plan for my life. You're executing that plan. You're working out. Even though right now my life's falling apart around me, I can't make sense of it. I trust you, Father, that you're working good. Come on, somebody. That's it. The second thing is our prayer is relational, not transactional. Our prayer is supposed to be relational, not transactional. Uh, Verse six, uh, verse seven. Jesus says, when you're praying, don't use thoughtless or meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. They think that they're gonna be heard because of their many words. Now, now notice what the Gentiles think is gonna be the reason prayers are answered. It's kind of on them, right? If I say the right thing, if I say it enough, if I say it in the right way, then, then God will hear and God will he'll answer my prayer. So my daughter Shannon works for a nonprofit, and she writes grant proposals to government agencies, foundations, corporations, trying to get money from them, donations from them for her nonprofit. And she's really good at it. Uh, and and she, so, so she painstakingly and, and, and painfully edits and re-edits and wordsmiths those things to death. I mean, she's constantly rewriting and she's thinking about the company and their needs and, and what their vision is and then she matches that with what her nonprofit is doing and she, she word, wordsmiths it and, 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 and because she wants to get money from them. And it's just got to be perfect. And again, I ask myself, how often is that my prayer? Like, if I just say it the right way, then I can, I can get what I want. I'll get my desires met. I want you to notice what Jesus didn't say when he started the prayer. 
He didn't say, my vending machine in heaven. He didn't say, my slot machine in heaven. That if I, if I just, just get the right gold tokens and put them in the, in the slot machine and pull the arm, <laughs> jackpot, I'm going to win. I'm going I'm to get what I want. And prayer is not about you getting what you want. Prayer is about a relationship. It's about a relationship with God, a friendship with God. And so Jesus says when you approach prayer, when you begin praying, our Father in heaven, recognize this isn't, this isn't to get what you want. This is a friendship. This is a relationship. God, God he, he wants you to, to talk to him from your heart. That's why earlier he said, don't just use meaningless repetition. Don't think that it's, it's the power of your word that's gonna get your prayer answered. I, I wanna hear you. I wanna know you. I wanna hear your heart. I want a relationship with you. See, prayer is not supposed to be transactional. It's supposed to be relational, growing deep in our, in our relationship with God. I, I am neither rich nor a politician, but I feel sorry for both. I feel sorry for rich people and I feel sorry for politicians because often people seek them out, not for friendship, but for what they can get. They seek rich people for handouts. They seek rich people for the money that they could have to give to their family or give to their organization or whatever. And politicians, people seek them for favors, for legislation, for something that's gonna help them. And again, I look at that and I say, how, how often are my prayers like that? I, I go to God not, not for friendship. I go to God not to love him, not to have a deeper relationship with him, but to get what I want to have my needs met. Jesus says something in, in, later in chapter six. You're familiar with this text, I know. He's talking about worrying about material things. And he says, don't worry. Even infl in inflation, don't worry about what you're gonna eat and what you're gonna drink. And if you're gonna have gas for your car, and if you're gonna have clothes to wear, if you're gonna be able to pay your mortgage. Don't, Jesus said, don't worry about that. Instead, in verse 33, he says, seek first my kingdom, God's kingdom and righteousness. Seek God first and everything's gonna work out. Seek relationship with him. Don't seek the things. Jesus says the Gentiles seek those things. They don't know God. You know him, so seek God. Seek his kingdom in your life first and all those things will take care of themselves. You'll have what you need. So, so prayer is, it, it's not transactional. It's relational. So Jesus begins the prayer by saying pray this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The third thing is, I think Jesus is teaching us, is that God is loving, not demanding. God is loving, not demanding. Now we're gonna read a scripture from Matthew chapter seven, still part of the Sermon on the Mount. If you are a parent, you are going to have a revelation of prayer today that maybe you've never had before. This is gonna be a life-altering truth if you understand it, because Jesus is talking to parents. So if you're a parent by adoption or biologically or both, it doesn't matter. If you, if you understand what it means to parent, this is, gonna, this is gonna empower your prayer life. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, you parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, let's stop there. What kids ever ask for a loaf of bread? <laughs> right? Like, that's weird. Or if they ask for a fish. Are they just gonna like gnaw on the fish? I, I, I guess different culture, okay. If they ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone? 
If they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you sinful or imperfect people, your love is imperfect, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, if you, if you know how to bless your children, how much more, say how much more, will your heavenly Father give good gifts to his children? If you who are imperfect, yet you have the heart of a parent, you have children, you know what that means. You, you want to give good things to your kids. You want to bless your kids. You want to help your kids. If you're a parent, you know that feeling. God's saying, how much more as we apply this to prayer does your Father in heaven want to give you good gifts? I've never had to tell a parent, you need to give your kids more. Ever. That I can remember, honestly. I've always had to say to them, stop giving them so much. You're ruining them, right? You need to be a little, maybe, maybe you're, you're teaching them to not be responsible. Maybe, maybe, maybe this is spoiling them. Maybe, maybe you're giving them a little bit too much. We never have to teach parents to give more to their kids. Why? It's in our hearts. It's called love. Parents love their kids. And they want to give. Because the nature of love is giving. God so loved the world that he gave. We express love by giving. So if, if you are a parent or a friend or a brother or a sister and you love the people in your life, you want to give to them. I, I have to tell parents to give less, not, not give more, because it's love. That, that's what, what Jesus is teaching, that it's God's love that moves him to give us the things in our life that we need. I can summarize this in two words, cheesecake and latte. Cheesecake and latte. So this week, my wife Charlene and I went out to dinner after work, separate cars. We met at the restaurant, we had dinner, and then she left. And there's a couple places in town uh, that sell Cheesecake Factory cheesecake. And she loves it. And so I went there on the way home, bought her a piece of cheesecake, plain, so we could put the caramel drizzle on it when we got home. And I brought it to her. Why did I do that? That's love, y'all. <laughs> it's just love. It wasn't because, oh, I'm leaving the restaurant. Oh, she did my laundry last night. Ah, oh, I got to get even. I, I, I got to even the score. I, I got to make up for that. She, she did that for me. No, it was just pure love. So two days later, I'm in my office, and, and she knocks on the door and walks in with a latte. Love, baby. <laughs> It wasn't ob obligatory, it wasn't out of obligation. It wasn't like, oh, the bum brought me cheesecake the other day, so <laughs> I, gotta, I gotta do the same thing, you know, whatever. No, no, none of that. It, it was purely love. She, she wanted to, and, and that's how you are. That's how you are with your kids, that's how, how hopefully you are with your spouse, that's how you are with your friends that you care about. Because, because the heart of love always wants to give. And it always wants to give, listen, more than is probably healthy, right? That, that's the way it is in my life. I, I would give more than, than is good probably. Okay, take that thought back to prayer. Jesus says, when you pray, start this way. My Father in heaven. Loving Father. Not demanding Father, not harsh Father. Loving Father. 
And when you approach him in prayer, think about the fact that you as a parent always want to give your kids more than is healthy. Jesus said, how much more is that God's attitude? That out of this heart of love for you, this deep love for you, he wants to bless you. You don't have to twist his arm. You don't have to convince him. You don't have to try to put the right words together. When you approach him, he is so crazy in love with you. He's ready to give. Ready to give. So Jesus can say this in in Luke chapter 12, verse 32. He can say, don't be afraid, little flock. It gives your father great happiness or pleasure or joy to give you the kingdom. Do you ever approach prayer like that? Like, God, it's your delight. It's your delight to pour your love into my life. It's your delight to give me the kingdom. It's your delight to bless me. Because it is. And we forget that. So when my kids were growing up, I've been in the ministry pretty much my whole life, and we never had money. I mean, the kids had money to do the basic things. They, they were in activities. It wasn't like they couldn't do anything. Or, you know. So they, they got to do the basics. But we rarely went out to eat. It was just too expensive. Um, Shirley and I go out now, and we see the families going out, and it's like, you know, families of five or six or seven, it's like, how do you afford that? Like, we could, we could never afford that. So when we did go out, they knew right away. There's no soft drinks here. You're drinking water. <laughs> and you'll like it. Because if you get soft drinks, that's another $10. Who's got $10 to add on to the bill? So it's water for you guys. That's how we grew, that's how we grew up. And it was fine. We had a great life. Okay? Now we have no kids. We're empty nesters. Now we have a little bit more money. So now I can afford to do things. And so uh, in June, our, our whole family flew to San Diego and we ran that race, a half marathon, some ran a 5K, and we got together. And, and I, I have a little bit of money now because uh, I don't have kids at home. And so I, I took them to Buca di Beppo out in California. Anybody been there? It's an Italian restaurant, really good, and they serve family-style dishes. Uh, you don't really order individually off the menu. So there's, there's small dishes, small bowls, and there's large bowls. And I said to the server, well, how, much, how many people does one large bowl feed? And she said, four to six. I said, hmm, all right, we got 12. We're going to need six of those bowls. <laughs> and I don't care how much it costs. Because I, I just want to bless my family. I want to be with my family. We don't get together that much. I just, I just enjoy giving and paying for that. They didn't have to, to write me a letter beforehand asking, hey, Dad, do you think maybe you could save up some money and take us out to dinner? They didn't have to ask. I wanted to do that. I think we took home four bowls of food left over. <laughs> it didn't matter. It didn't matter. Why? There is such joy and delight in blessing your kids, taking your kids out, give, giving them a good time. And we don't think that God the Father's like that. And Jesus, Jesus pulls us back and says, listen, when you pray, I'm going I'm to give you five pictures of God. The first is a loving father, a father that cares, a father that has a purpose and a plan for your life, a father that's relational, not transactional, a father that cares about every detail of your life, and all he wants you to do is talk to him from your heart. He doesn't want you to write a grant proposal. He wants you to talk to him about the the issues in your life and be honest with him and have a deep relationship with God your father. That's what he wants. And if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you seek God first, you're going to find he's meeting every one of those needs when you put him first. And he does it all out of love, not obligation. He's not a demanding father, he's a loving father. And none of us are perfect. 
It's not like we have to earn the Father's love by, by living a perfectly obedient life. None of us do that. All fall short of the glory of God. And yet the grace of God makes up for that. And the love of God continues to pour His goodness into our lives. Come on, somebody. Continually. That's His nature. He's love. Jesus was smart when He said, begin your prayer like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I said we're going to take some time in, in each of our services to, to pray together corporately in this season of prayer. And we're going to do that this morning. So, so stand, stand up with me this morning. The, the very first theme of our prayer is thanksgiving. I know it's a little bit early in the month, but we're starting with thanksgiving. Because as we approach the Lord, we don't want to say, um, God, give us more. We want to say, God, we're so thankful for what you've already given us. So pause for a moment with me and ask yourself, what do I need to be thankful for right now? What in my life is worth saying, God, you've been faithful. God, you've been good. Is it your family? Is it your job? Is it your health? Is it your marriage? What can you say, God, thank you today? Do your kids know the Lord? Have your kids recently come back to the Lord? What, what's going on? And we as a church, the, the, the text prompts that you're going to get this week are going to be areas of thanksgiving that we're saying, God, thank you for doing this in the church. Because we just want to come to the Lord first and say, God, we're grateful. And so every week we're going to, we're going to make a, a corporate confession to the Lord. And this morning it's centered around thanksgiving. Would you, would you read this and confess this with me? Let's say this together. God, we praise you for you are good. Your enduring love has shown itself to us in baptisms, in life groups, in financial gifts, in young people pouring into your church, and so much more. Help us to remember that it's not the numbers, the programs, the staff, or the leaders that deserve the credit, but you alone, Lord. You have poured your grace upon us. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you have changed lives. You've caused our hearts to change, your church to grow, and your people to know your love. As we consider your great and awesome works, our hearts are filled with gratitude. We offer you our hearts, our minds, our resources, and our praise.